Welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is a longtime friend. And probably, this is a very specific category, Nick, but probably the most charismatic guy I know. <laughs> That's so nice of you. Thank you. And I'm talking, of course, about Nick Bryan. And uh, Nick, it's great to see you and to have you on Great Minds. Great to be on. It's great. Thank you for the invitation. So, Nick, I, I want to start and I want to go all the way back to 1982 and to your very first day working as a TV buyer at Gray in London. And you were fresh out of school. Yeah. What do you remember going back to that very beginning of your career? I remember being confused because my direct boss don't forget, this was England. This is London in 1982. So anyone who's British will remember this or is old enough. Uh, he asked me to walk his dog. And he said I had to walk his dog three times a day. And I said, well, I've, I'm here and I'm going to be a time buyer. I'm buying time. And he said, this is part of your time management. You will walk my dog three times a day. I said, I'll walk your dog today because it's my first day, but I'm not going to walk your dog tomorrow. That's not why I'm here. So we kind of came to a bit of an agreement about that. But then he neglected me because I neglected his dog, which was a very nice Cocker Spaniel. Uh, and then I really didn't know what I was doing. And I had some chaos because I, when I had arrived, I remember the Timex, I was uh, getting ready for the Timex Christmas campaign. We had a few Beecham products. And I kept getting these calls from various TV stations saying, you've had a preemption. I said, okay, thank you. And I just basically, a preemption was, you bid me higher. I mean, I, ironically, it's a day, you know, full on auction. And uh, if you knocked out my spot, I was meant to actually either find another spot at the same price or up, up the rate, you know, increase the rates. I didn't. I just, so basically by the end of it, I had no campaign. Everything had been preempted. I thought I was doing a good job. All the money was back. And uh, Timex had a very disastrous Christmas. So... I, um, I nearly got fired. I learned my way through that, but I loved it. I realized it was something I really enjoyed. I really enjoyed the, uh, the interaction with uh, Thames Television and London Weekend and all the various regional television stations at that time. There was no ITV. There were the 13 regional stations, and uh, I loved it. It was math. It was trading. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so that's what I remember. Fantastic. And you had a couple other gigs in media at Benton and Bowles and WCRS. And then all of a sudden you're in your late 20s and you're a managing partner at BBJ Media. That was pretty young to all of a sudden have a managing partner post. Yeah, I was 26 and it was Jerry Bullman. Ironically, we'll, we'll talk about that again because I got back on the radio, radio again with Jerry uh, and Nigel and a few others who started the business. He asked me to uh, join him in a breakaway. And the truth was, we caught a wave. We caught a wave called media unbundling. And we were at the vanguard of that. We really were in the UK at that time. And it was encouraged by Bass Brewers. And Bass was the biggest, you know, think about, you know, Bush here now, you know, one of the big global players like Heineken. Bass Brewers was the major player in the UK. And, uh, they had the foresight to realize that all the, all the creative agencies, they, they had so many different brands, the most famous one being Carling Black Label. They wanted to ensure they had the flexibility to move uh, around for the best creative ideas, but they didn't want to jeopardize their, their media bind, you know, the sense. So they decided to centralize it. They wanted it independent. So they unbundled it and they, and they backed, uh, they, had a, they had a bind unit called the Bass Bind Unit, which was led by Jerry Bullman. 
He's gone on to become, you know, brilliant in his own right in many aspects of the career. And then a couple of years after the BBJ had been established, Jerry came to me and he said, look, you're doing all the planning for Carling Black Label and for Stones and a number of the brands. We want to create a business that is an independent media agency. We want you to come on board, be my partner. And I did. And I never looked back. And we had, Matt, we had so much fun. Uh, I think Basque were very uh, understanding. They knew we were great media. We were very talented media execs. We really enjoyed it. We attracted great talent. But we didn't know anything about business. We were learning on the fly. So it was the opportunity to be entrepreneurs um, and really be in a business. It was a very exciting time. And do you remember any of the other, beyond Bass, any of the other early client projects that you worked on that, you know, when you lay awake at night and you reflect on that, that you remember fondly? Yeah, I think when it's interesting you raise that when they had they Bass had shares in a number of uh, and they had stakeholders in a number of other businesses. Uh, they had Taunton Cider. They had a couple of food groups. They had a betting business. They had a significant stake in, and they gradually put pressure in a I think in a constructive way on these other businesses to say, look, we found a better model. It's a better mousetrap. You're able to move your creative around. You're able, but you're able to have the you know consistency of one buying team. And if you put your business with us, it was classic consolidation. They can go to market on behalf of all of us with a bigger pool of money and they can lower prices. And those businesses joined in. Then we won our first independent non-BAS client. Uh, yeah, and I, I remember that. That was RHM Foods, which was the equivalent of a General Mills Kellogg's. It was, you know, and, and it was genuinely outside. It was our first really non-BAS related client. And uh, it was a fantastic. And then off we went. BBJ became very, but I was still very, it's interesting from a career point of view, I was very stuck with Bass. They really liked me. I liked them, but it was getting a rather, you know, pedestrian to get on the train, you know, to Burton on Trent every week and spend a couple of days in, in Bass with them. And I wanted more. I wanted the international. I got the flavor of, the, of, of thinking internationally and Leo Burnett was the business that, 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 you know, contacted me after I'd been with BBJ, I think for four or five years saying, we want, uh, we have a broken media operation. We need it to be run more like an independent business. And then we were getting whiffs of this in the US. Starcom hadn't happened at that stage. This was still very much, the US was still very much integrated. The first ones that tried to unbundle that was Sarchi's, the Zenith, if you remember. But I went to Leah Burnett because I wanted the international, I wanted the global accounts. They had McDonald's, they had PG, they had Kellogg's, you know, they had they had uh, some, they had Philip Morris at that stage, uh, which was an advertiser. So I really enjoyed that. And then I had that international aspect, and I really did want that because I really wanted, I didn't want to be stuck just in the UK. Uh, so that was the next move. So you're CEO of Leo Burnett UK, you have about a 10 year run there. I want to come back to Jerry, who you referenced earlier. And I, I think, Nick, where we should probably go, because your perspective on this is you might have more perspective on it than anybody who's ever worked in our business around the uh, way media and creative were together, separated, and are now coming back together. But before we go there, 10 years at Leo Burnett, that's a hell of a run. Oh, it was a great one. And I think it had a different, it had a number of different challenges. Because when I went to Leo Burnett, it was to be their media, their UK media director. And I said, look, I, I don't want to just do that. I want to run, I want to run a creative agency. I want to run a full service agency. I want to learn about the other parts. Because at that stage, I said, media is a subset of marketing. Marketing is not a subset of media. And I had a, I, I, I also had a 
believe I'd have rather in the city. If I was just going to be trading a commodity, I could go to the city of London um, and uh, trade commodities and make more money. And I was intellectually challenged and I was very curious. I loved the idea of brands. I loved the differentiation from marketing. I always knew that as long as there's capitalism, there's going to be marketing. As long as there's marketing, there's going to be advertising and media. Now you'd say digital. So Lear Burnett were very good and they, they honored their commitment. That went two, within two years, I was running the UK as a, as a CEO. Within another two years, I was running Europe. Uh, and uh, then publicists acquired us. So this is why it was interesting because then Maurice asked me to focus on developing art worldwide and creating the network effect for what we all called derogatorily then below the line. And that included digital at that stage, which was in its infancy. So you think there was networks with the big global brands had network creative, they had network media, but the rest of it was a very much a dog's dinner. So I did that for a few years. And then Jack Clues reached out to me uh, and uh, Jack and Bob Brennan, who were running Starcom, and they had then seen the success of both the UK and the French markets unbundling from an economic point of view, not necessarily from a strategic view. And that's it. We'll come back to this. We'll come back to the bigger conversation. And they said, um, we want you to come over to the US because you bring context. You, you are a media executive, but now you've worked in general management. You understand much more about the media and the creative and the dynamics of how they need to fuse and, you know, one-on-one makes 10 but we need you in the short term to come. And Maurice said, look, I'd like you to go, I'd like you to go to the US, develop the international rollout of Starcom. Because at that stage, Publicis Group had acquired the Lear Burnett company. And at the, they had acquired Lear Burnett and DMBNB with the backing and actually some money, obviously from Dentsu to the whole BCOM3 thing. But what they found, the diamond in the rough was Starcom Mediavest Group. The diamond in the rough was start SMG. It was a huge success. It was a massive money machine. And at that stage, I don't think Maurice, if he asked, if he was honest about it, I don't think he'd ever really believed how remarkable that success was. He got the business very cheaply, got access to some great clients, some great talent, some great businesses. And I really enjoyed my time. So it was a long period of time, but it had it went from independent ownership to, to public ownership with Maurice. But I'm glad I had those five five years, um, or five yeah five and a half years prior when Leobanet was an independent company because the Leobanet culture was fantastic. It was amazing. It was it while it was insulin, it had such high caliber. The talent levels were so high. The culture was so strong, and it was full service from a business point of view. It had that level like the account. You've been an account director. You were considered. You think about those young account directors who worked on the various accounts, whether it be United Airlines or McDonald's or whatever, they were expected to be business partners. They were working at such a high level. It was a full promise of the integration. And I don't know, they, did they get scared by digital? Did they think they didn't have enough money to compete in it? Or did they just, did some of the founders get the, the some of the, you know, not the founders, but some of the follow-on management get greedy and want to sell out, maybe. But it was a shame in a way when I look back, uh, I, I love that. Uh, experience and then the business formally unbundled then globally i think every once that tidal wave and it happened here in the u.s around the world with the exception of brazil as we know because of the ownership you know the, the regulations there everyone else separated their media from their creative which in an analog world was an easier thing to do it's easier to understand and manage the general and there were campaigns and there were it's not like you know there was a it was one you know one commercial or one piece of content 
reaching millions of different people. Now we need millions of pieces of content to reach a million different people. So it was a different time then. And the unbundling then with the rise of digital as it's been occurring and to where it is today, uh, obviously is completely nonsensical. I mean, to, to have this separation between who you're trying to engage with, with what you're trying to engage them with in terms of content and also where. Because, you know, is the context, I think this is something we'll see on our industry, the contextual dynamic of advertising, of messaging, of engagement will come more to the fore because it's, it's just obvious. I mean, if I send a text to my wife, I love you, darling, you're so gorgeous, or I walk her down the beach, the night, you know, the moon is shining, I hold her hand or I whisper to her, same content is just a completely different context. So I do think that we're going to find a way with the smarts and the intelligence of a digital environment to bring context back into it. Um, so, but the run of the media independent all the way, uh, it was a very, it was very successful. And what it did do, listen, everyone focuses on the negative of the unbundling and the impact on brand efficacy in the favor of efficiency. And it's true, the pendulum had swung far too much especially when I came to these shores, I, I realized, you know, I, I went to my first upfront presentation and no one, I, I'd sit through these ad pods of 15 minutes. Everyone was so obsessed about efficiency. No one talked about effectiveness and having, and that move from media into general marketing and the general conversations you're having as a CEO with C-suite executives, they don't, they really want to talk about the effectiveness. So they want to talk about efficiency, but they want to talk about what is the most effective thing to do to help them win, keep and grow their best customers and then execute with ruthless efficiency. But you don't start with the efficiency. You start with the most intelligent decisioning for what you should be doing. So I found it when I came to these shores really quite frustrating because the media business uh, was not being as, it, I tell you, it's interesting. I always believed that they would be very disrespectful for the consumers. And now what, what are we witnessing? A million homes every single month, the cord cutting, accelerating because the different options are there. It's like you're in New York. I mean, I'm a New Yorker. I'm sorry. After you get you're so many years, you've been forced to get in the back of a yellow taxi and go on your hands and knees and fall out into the puddle like a dog. And then Uber comes along. I'm not going back. I mean, I'm just not going back. And there's a whole generation that have grown up with streaming and OTT, and they're never going to go back to the bullshit experience of cable. So what cable did to linear, streaming is doing to cable. And I think we're seeing a situation that the consumer, I found that too many aspects of the media industry were very focused on the publisher and the agency and the brand. But in this context, the viewer, the consumer, you know, who's forget about being a consumer. They're a citizen first, so a person. And there was no respect or consideration to that. They were just something to be packaged and sold in units to, you know, media buyers. So I think it was, but notwithstanding, there's, there's like in everything, there's good and bad. I love the media industry and the independence of media. It gave a recognition to the importance of media uh, it did a good job in that regard, <clears throat> but it's time to come back together. So you've lived and led on both sides of the Atlantic. Give us your perspective on the business, looking at the business cultural differences between the U.S. and the U.K. Well, the Brits drink more at lunchtime and the Americans drink more at night. Um 
golf is universal. Um, the the Brits do st will still favour and work hard on the buy side and the sell side to do to really build relationships and try and make them as personal. The scale of the US and the sheer geographic scale, um, uh, which is this is not a country. I mean, it's a continent. It's a massive continent. You have to look at it through the lens of Europe almost. Because if, you do, if you're living in Germany and trying to do business with someone in Scotland or you're living in Sweden and you want to do business with someone in Spain, you're, you're going to be more likely to be considerate to how you're going to find a way to do that. Are you going to automate? Are you going to use technology? What are you going to do? London, it, you know, England, it is really, I mean, the main engine of it is London. Of course, you have, you have some, obviously, agencies in Edinburgh and you have some a big centre in Birmingham. The essence of the industry in the UK is in the East London. It's a very small little village. Here in the US, no. I mean, you talk Atlanta, Chicago, New York, Chicago, LA. You know, you're talking San Francisco. And I think the big shift is, from a cultural point of view, outside of that, uh, I think that the, the notion that the clients... No, no, maybe that's becoming the same more. That's really it. I found it very, very easy to do business. And also there's, there was always so much of a transatlantic kind of corridor. It was London, Madison Avenue, Madison Avenue, London. It was that was the whole Atlantic play. And it was ever since I came here, the shift has been heading more to the Pacific. It's an LA, it's, well, it's the tech giants are in Silicon Valley, they're in San Francisco. So suddenly the emphasis of our industry from when I joined it, and it was all about Madison Avenue, it was all about London, it has shifted. I mean, now you think, I mean, even when we go back, when I first arrived on these shores, everyone was talking about the promise of Madison and buying, and it was LA, it was going to be content, it wasn't just going to be push-based interruptive advertising, however annoying we think that is. I was going to pull you into the content experience, and my brand was going to be well-natively integrated into awesome content. Who better to do that than Hollywood cats? And that never really worked. It hasn't ever really worked. I think it is going to start working and starting to work more now. But the gears work in completely different ways. The gears move at different speeds between the whole Hollywood versus the whole Madison, you know, the ad industry. And there was a lot, and there's so many cultural differences there. So I think to answer your question, between the UK and the US, I found them very slight, or certainly between New York. I think what I'm finding as much, because I'm now living in LA and I've come across this amazing country and I'm now on the other, I am on the Pacific side now, because this was my next chapter. I wanted that to be my next experience. There's as much cultural difference between LA and New York as there is between New York and London. They're great cities. And what I think unifies our industry, though, that's a great unifier. Everyone loves people. People really enjoy other people. People enjoy the, the, the advances of technology and data. People enjoy creativity. And there's a lot of innovation. I mean, that's what I, I continue to be so excited about. We're entering into yet again another era of innovation and accountability. And I think that's what's so exciting because our industry suffered from a lot of innovation and creativity. And we didn't, from a client's perspective, have enough focus on accountability and attribution. You know, that whole everyone threw around the law, leave Hume, you know, 50% of my advertising is wasted. Come on. I mean, really, is that the best of it? So I, I think that, that it, it, for me, it's been a great experience crossing the Atlantic and coming to work in the US. I've loved it. I loved every minute of it. Yeah, I, I think you're right about as much cultural difference between New York and LA as there is been 
between New York and London. And we're up to some stuff that I'm very excited about going forward. And I think one of the reasons why between Madison Avenue and Hollywood, why no one's really gotten it right is to get it right, you have to understand the language and the mechanics of both businesses. Yes. And you have many people who pretend to know both, but don't. And um, we've got some stuff coming down the pike that I think will crack that. So you have worked with some incredible people, Nick. And uh, on Great Minds, I love to touch on some of those names who are part of our industry so we don't forget them. And you you mentioned a name, a guy I got to know pretty well and had nothing but love and respect for. He used to come to an event that we did years ago when Jerry Yang was running Yahoo at Pebble Beach. And that was a guy named Jack Clues. Uh, yeah. I'd love to get your perspective on Jack, who I thought was all class and just a super smart guy. Oh, yeah. No, I, I, I think also bravo to you to, to, to want to acknowledge because some of the giants who were so fundamental in establishing not just success in the agencies, but from the industry point of view, uh, Jack was always one of them. The Jack was... First, I mean, outside of being the executive as a guy, as a person, as a human being, just an awesome mensch, kind, compassionate, considerate. And also, was I learned a lot from Jack because Jack would, he would manage in a very relaxed uh, and, and hands-off and, and, and a very empowering way by giving, but in, in some ways, in my instances, I believe that he'd over-delegate and he'd over, he 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 you know, give big, big, big bets to unproven. And he would say to me, Nick, uh, I, will, I will, you know, some will blow up, some won't work out, but I'll always go further because people are basically motivated to do it on their own. And I, I give them that benefit of a doubt. He was always um, a very compassionate and understanding person at the human level because everyone's human. We're not all Altamons yet. And people had their stuff. But he was a great attractor of talent, I think, fundamentally because he had a great eye for it, because he's wickedly smart, very intelligent, very shrewd negotiator. He always reminded me, you know, they kind of had that more relaxed or shy. He was such a different character to, say, Bob Brennan, who we partnered with for a while. But, but Jack was someone who was passionate about industry standards, who was very determined to run a very, very good business, but he was also extremely loyal. And he built tremendous depth of relationships with many clients who knew they could always go to Jack and not get well-explained failure, but get, as Winston Churchill said, inexplicable success. And um, I've always remembered a lot of my lessons working with Jack uh, because he was never tricky. He was always straight. You could have a very candid, direct conversation, however tough they were. And he had that kind of Midwestern sensibility. And you look at the luminaries who came out of Starcom and the MediaVest even, I mean, that was one of the toughest challenges when I had, when I joined, I landed and the beak and the first thing he said is you're in Chicago, your wife's pregnant. You've just settled here. You're finding your feet, but you've got to manage this thing called media vest. It's in New York. And by the way, there's some, uh, somewhat, sometimes a little bit of animosity between New York and Chicago and between Starcom and media vest. They were the apps. And I had to arrive in New York with a Bodicea of a leader called Donna Salvatore, who had who just said you have come from where some damn little island in the Atlantic and you're going to be my chairman sent here by Jack Clues? Are you kidding? You fucking kidding? It was incredible. It was one of the funniest experiences I had. I actually ended up and she was such a toughie. 
but I, I, eventually I really became very, very fond of huge respect for Donna and the, and all the Media Best crew I was working with. It was great. But there was that was one of the funniest things Jack Clues ever jumped on me. But again, uh, a massive industry luminary who did a huge amount to uh, to set the professional standards of the media industry globally. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. So all of your experience working in media, working on the creative side, working on the experiential side collides in your tenure at IPG, where you ran a number of different businesses for them, UM, and then the launch of IPG Media Brands, and then McCann globally. An incredible run at IPG. Give us the cultural difference. We talked about UK, US. You were in deep in the publicist family from Burnett to what we just talked about, Starcom and MediaVest. And now all of a sudden, you're in an entirely different culture at IPG. Very different culture. And one that I was uh, almost a bit like when I arrived in the US and went to Chicago, um, I was ill-prepared for because it was moving so fast. Michael Roth, I mean, they reached out to me because they knew I'd had a tremendous amount of success on the media side and they needed that. UM was very broken. It was half in, half out with McCann. <clears throat> the initiative was doing what it was doing over here. ID Media, it was all very messed up. And I said I said the same thing as I said all those years ago at Limonette. Look, I'd love a shot to run the McCann World Group. It's the biggest ad agency group in the world, biggest global network. Some of the most amazing clients, you think about L'Oreal, GM, Coca-Cola, the biggest of the biggest of the enterprise clients. And I said, okay, I'll do it. I, 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 I know I can do it. But at the time, IPG was being called the beleaguered IPG and Michael Roth had just taken over. He'd taken over like a year earlier. And he, he, he's a smart guy and a tough guy and a, and a, a financially astute. So he was obviously real focused with the city, making with Wall Street, shareholders, renegotiating debt. There was a huge amount of mess at the corporate level within IPG. And there was a lot of restatements, if you remember at that time. A lot of it was down to the media. A lot of it was down to the whole AVBs. So there was this whole gray zone between what's, what's disclosed, what's contractually okay versus what's disclosed, what's known about. And we're talking about the dark gray side of the media industry that still is prevalent in many countries of the world. It's not really here in the US at all. Uh, I don't see it at all. Um, but at that time, it was really the international um, and, and all the issues that really a lot of them went to McCann. So it was a tough time in the early days of getting UM and all the media operations cleaned up and, and running from a talent point of view, from a professional point of view, also from an ethical point of view. Worked very closely with Michael um, and uh, really enjoyed my time. Really enjoyed, very much enjoyed my time at IPG. Uh, and, uh, you know, within the McCann World Group, again, another thorny, complex, challenging space. And I think I made, uh, you like any of these opportunities, when you take them on, you believe you, you, you've got to do your best to uh, leave them better than when you, when you arrived. And I believed I did. And uh, I learned a huge amount along the way because the McCann World Group, what John Duna had done, and I give him the credit for the vision to say, you know, we're not going to just be about one channel. It's not just going to be the advertising channel. It's going to be about PR, which is Weber Shammy. It's going to be about one-to-one -one CRM. That was going to be MOM, McCann Relationship Marketing. And then, uh, you know, we think about the success of Chris, 
um, uh, the momentum, you know, excellent business in the experiential space. In fact, it's funny, I think of Chris while every now and then because you keep hearing the word fidgetal, fidgetal, the fusion between fidgetal and digital. Well, Chris has been saying that, you know, ever since I've known him for 15 years. But the McCann World Group had these very independent entities. It was a clan. It was a clan. It was a federation. It wasn't working as one organization. So that I found challenging, uh, but a lot of fun. Really enjoyed it. And I enjoyed my time at Interpublic. You then have an extended cup of coffee at iCrossing, and then an old friend comes back, and you get a call. Before you go over that, I think that that's an important one because the iCrossing one is just worth saying because it was really Hearst. That, that was another one where they had acquired it. But to work on the sell side, to work on a publisher side, because I was always excited, and that's one day what I will do. I will want a large entertainment, a media company, because the media companies have the best. They have it all. They just sell it in the wrong way. They have media and they have data. You think about it. They have the content. They have the data. They have the platforms, but they're selling advertising, and those rates, especially in the digital world, are so dominated. You think Google dominates 75% or 80% of global search. Facebook is so short on that. Amazon's there as well. They've been too weak and fragmented, yet had they started to flip it and say, okay, we're not going to just be selling ads, and we, we're going to, because their revenue model was only two ways. They made money on subscription, money on advertising, and yet they weren't in marketing. They didn't move further up the food chain to engage with the brands to start to advocate, as well as advertising on our platforms or in our publication we will create native content because the only reason you ever took an ad, the only reason you ever bought an ad was in the belief I could influence you to take a behavior, pick up the phone, go online, send the email, whatever that, that's what I want to do. Well, what about another way to engage you emotionally? Well, it's through the content in a native and organic way. So actually, Hearst had acquired iCrossing. They thought they were buying an integrated digital agency that would help them digitize all their work process and their functions and their business model to become a more digitally viable business. They bought a performance media agency. They bought a search shop. I mean, they bought badly. They didn't know what they were doing with it. They wanted me to come in and clean that up and do it. And I, I said, I will do that. Because actually, I'll try to buy it from them earlier. I will do that. But I want to learn about the publishing business. I want to learn about the media business. So that three years was very instructive because it made me really appreciate that I, at this stage, am an agency cat, and I enjoy being on the agency side, on the buy side, not the sell side, because I find the sell side is still too structured, you know, by the formats. You know, you're, you're, you're selling radio, you're selling TV, you're selling... Now I think the world has changed. People are buying audiences, and they're not buying the channels, or they're not buying the media, and they can move around in terms of where the audiences are. But that three-year period was very instructive uh, and a growth opportunity for me because, you know, people know they need to grow. No one really knows how. The only way you grow is by doing the unfamiliar and the uncomfortable. It's the only way you grow, but you need to grow. So that period was great. And then, yes, an old friend called me. Okay, so you stopped us. So let's stay where we stopped for a moment. We just had Anna Jones, who's a dear friend. She was uh, – the first female president of Hearst in the UK. Now she's running a wonderful global enterprise called Albright, and she was on Great Minds last week. So we talked about the magazine business on the whole. We talked about the outdoor business, the radio business, and the newspaper business. And observationally, it feels like the outdoor business has been reinvented with digital outdoor. 
radio business has been reinvented with what we're doing right now, a podcast and the rise of digital radio. The magazine business and the newspaper business, much tougher paths and have had a much tougher time. Do you think I sort of got that right? Or you know, what, what, what's, your, what's your vantage point? Because you're far more learned about this than I. Well, it didn't have to be so tough. It didn't have to be so tough. It's just they failed to innovate. They just focused on optimizing their existing things. Listen, I don't want to run a better railroad. If the future is aviation, then build me a plane. Come on. They needed to change. They could have done local. No one does local more. I think radio advertising sucks. The radio medium, however, is amazing. Radio marketing, the influence of the local, you think the local opportunity, the other part that the magazines and newspapers failed to grasp was commerce and integrating content to commerce. Why should Cosmopolitan, Vogue, Harper's Bar, why would they have all the influence of what the fashions are or popular mechanics has all the influence on what should be built? And yet all of that transaction from the influence to, to fail to connect that and bring that all together was a giant mist and they saw it and they were told about it. Digital was another one. Why you're gonna let Google's crawlers crawl all over your content. You're gonna to bother to allow Facebook to take all your content into the platform and they're gonna give you cents on the dollar. You don't have any, you deal with the agencies who have all consolidated. They've got these big media buying groups and you fail to develop direct, really sophisticated direct client access where you're talking business. They should have hired marketing people, marketing strategists who could have taught and changed the nature of the conversation with their clients on when you're talking specifically about magazines and newspapers from reaching audiences to delivering results. What about how do we optimize business outcomes? What are the out, what is the reason you're even thinking about advertising? You're trying to drive a sale, you're trying to drive leads. My job is not to drive a sale. My job in the advertising business is to get the most qualified leads into your showroom, into your dealership online, and then you need to be able to convert them and close that gap between advertising, sales, service. What those industries never did, they defined themselves in too much of a limited way, and then they got outgunned by Google and Facebook who have more sophisticated data, more sophisticated targeting, easier workflow, and gave increasing ability to draw drive lookalikes and find people and build audiences that scale that with the scale and sophistication. So suddenly you've got these businesses with very little scale and no sophistication against giants who are now going to offer it. So they missed it. They could have become much smarter about it. Some of the, some of the smaller newspaper groups banded together with local outdoor and local radio and became local marketing solutions and went to the SMBs and started to talk about how they could reorganize in a more customized way. But a lot of the big players just played the cost control game and just were cutting and cutting and cutting in response to revenue decline, as opposed to really reimagining the model and starting to say, okay, our assets are valuable. Our platforms are valuable. Our content is amazing. Our audience data and our true information. And that's the other thing. You now, obviously, the digital world went into PII and has been focused very much on identity. Now, every client is looking to think about how they manage first, second, third party data. How do we have a, an identity graph? They All these big companies, they sat with the mentality that was fine to sell audiences as opposed to appreciating they had communities. You know, that's the thing I learned at Hearst. You know, when I think about Oprah magazine, I think about some of them. They were, they, there's no reason why they couldn't, all the magazines and newspapers couldn't have acquired, they couldn't have signed up to Marketo and find a way to have 
you know, directly primary audience information that would have been about identifiable audiences as individuals and made that shift to people-based marketing and made that shift into having data that would have been so valuable, they could have done so much more with it as opposed to selling anonymous eyeballs. So between the Silicon Valley freight train and those industries largely being flat-footed, they really set themselves up for their own demise. That was it. Yeah. Okay, so let's move on to uh, your friend, Jerry. You get another phone call from an old friend. Yeah, that had been. And I've stayed in contact. I watched Jerry's success from BBJ that got sold into Cara. He ran Cara UK, Cara International. And then before you knew, and I knew it was going to happen, one day he was going to be running Aegis PLC, the PLC. He'd be at the top of it. And he had sold, or they had sold, I think before he arrived, uh, Bolloré. Uh, obviously, of Havas had taken the min, I think it taken the maximum level, like twenty one or twenty two percent under the UK stock exchange rules before you have to declare your hand and make a full bid or not. He'd just taken enough, which was enough to scare off anyone else and block anyone else, and it was enough for him to have that strategic, you know, what's going to happen, what's he going to do, what's he going to do. So Jerry was running that, and there was some frustration, I think, that was going on there. But I think he got on, he got on very well with with Vincent Bolloré. So Jerry ran Aegis and I was skirmish with him across the world. I was running global media networks. He was running one. Cara and the whole Aegis was super powerful in the in, in the Europe and, and not so much the Americas. I had IPG. We had huge strength in, in the US and the Americas, some weakness, but we were all a bit patchy in, in, in Asia. Um, I think WPP had a lot more and Omnicom had more strength there. Um, but either way, we, we stayed in contact um uh, but it was his professional friends i've always had a professional huge respect for jerry and friendship but then he called me and he said then have acquired us he'd sold the business into the japanese um they had acquired it and then bolloway's 22 percent. they bought the whole thing um and it was three years or two years into that relationship and the u.s uh dan densu americas had been built up really through m a it was a huge operation uh, 26 different operating units in the US. And he said, look, the Americas from the top of Canada to the bottom of Argentina, I've just got so many moving pieces and uh, and I'm dealing, I'm spending a lot of my time dealing with, with uh, my Japanese owners. I've got to spend more time with Dentsu. I need you to come in and run it. And I met with uh, Tim Andre as the chairman of Dentsu. Um, had very good, you know, undertaking with Tim. And I, t- and so, yeah, joined up with Jerry again and, uh the Dentsu Aegis Network. And it was um, Nigel Morris was there as well. Nigel had been running Dan- Dentsu, um, you know, or Aegis before it even got in. He was running Aegis, the Americas. But then I think for family reasons, he went back to the UK. It was a bit of a void. So yeah, that was, it was great getting back on the rodeo with, uh, it, which is why it always reveals, I mean, anyone listening, I think one of the things that I've said, I think growth matters greatly, but relationships matter greatly as well. And maintaining, especially when we've all reflected on it, you know, coming out of COVID and we are thankfully coming out of this thing, apart from my dear colleagues over in India, having a very tough time right now, but you realize relationships matter because Jerry contacted me 25 years after we had worked together, circled back on me to say, Nick, I need, I need a big operator who knows what they're doing. I've got all these different units and they're all different, you know, brand identity, PR, digital, you know, performance marketing. And, and the other one, they had just acquired Merkel. And Merkel 
is, as you know, an awesome machine. I and mean, it's really a data and technology company. It, it, I mean, it has services to sell what it has, but it's agency business. It was growing fast, but they were still hardcore data technology. They're more like Adobe or Salesforce as a service. And they were outside of this. So you had almost when I arrived, there were three separate universes or metaverses all moving around. There was Dentsu, there were the owners in Japan, <coughs> Merkel, which was a huge and a very different kind of culture to the age. And then all these different agencies, big brands like Cara and McGarry Bone on the creative side. And it was really fun bringing them together. It was really fun integrating Merkel more, worked very closely with David Williams, who's, who's a brilliant uh, chairman, CEO of, of, of Merkel and, and Craig uh, and all the leadership team and just bringing them you know, or not even, not even bringing them in because it wasn't bringing them into anywhere. It was creating together what the Dentsu Americas or the Dentsu International operating model was going to be. It had to be a new model because it was being made of all these different constituents' parts. And no one had a clear recipe. You know, we'd all been, we'd all been to shopping. We'd all gone, you know, and yet we'd all been pushing around our product. You thought we were having Italian. I thought we were cooking French. Someone over there thought we were having a Japanese meal. We're all moving our trolleys around and we all come together. We've got all this stuff. And of course, clients don't buy stuff. They're living in a world of fragmentation. They want more integration. They need more integration. They might not even know they want it. But if you truly want the power and the sum of the parts and the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, you better integrate. And our value proposition that we worked on together was to say, okay, how that's what we should be doing with our capability set. Let's stop talking about the capabilities as a fact. Let's talk about it as a benefit. And the benefit of when we bring these all things together, Mr. or Mrs. Client, is that we can help you win, keep, and grow your best customers. How do we acquire them at the lowest cost? How do we retain them through the most engaged, relevant, and personalized loyalty programs? And how do we turn loyalty into growth? Obviously, LTV. I mean, finding that flywheel, which the digital companies have really mastered, in performance media, which is all about lowering CAC and increasing LTV. Now you got to lower that puppy down and you've got to drive up LTV. Because again, I mean, profitability comes through loyalty. Loyalty is profitability. And so much of our industry, one of the nasty things about our industry, I would say a media in general, is that big media, big agencies were very much top of the funnel, which was about customer acquisition and not giving enough concern to reducing churn and finding a way to make people more loyal. I mean, my prediction for the next five years, coming out of this pandemic, I think we're going to see the costs of media, of acquisition costs go up. I think more money is going to flood into retention and acquisition. Fantastic. All right, we're going to get to your uh, fearless forecasts uh, and we wrap up. But we talked about cultural differences, US, UK. We talked about New York, LA. Perhaps the largest cultural divide that you've had to wrestle with was between Dentsu and the Aegis Network. I'd love to get your vantage point and reflections on those differences, what worked and what was destined to fail. Because I think to some degree, the culture out of Dentsu in Japan and we do a lot of business with them. We launched Advertising Week Asia in Tokyo in uh, 2016. And many of the people that you mentioned, Tim, Jerry, Nigel, were very instrumental in helping us make that happen. 
uh, and have been to Shiodomi to the Dentsu building many, many, many times. Uh, and we have wonderful relationships there, Hideo Rai and, and others. That's a huge cultural divide between Dentsu and Aegis. Yeah, I, I, I need to be th really thoughtful. Uh, I and very respectful because is the differences are start at the cultural level as they are in the business level, in ev in every way. I mean, I I found it uh, I found it was not something that I wanted to continue with long term for my career you know and tim and i had a very healthy agreement about that towards the end uh i feel that one of the biggest outside of the obvious cultural and societal differences that are so significant from a business point of view Dentsu is a market in japan it is a market it, it's such a power player it is so predominant yeah there's hakahodo there and there's other smaller agencies but their significance and the integration of business and politics and politics and media and the cross ownerships dentsu is so massive it is so the institution it doesn't exist it, it by the way in some ways it would be but it's ownership of media and it's ownership of the agencies it's an integral it's a business model that wouldn't be allowed in the u.s it would be broken it would not stand the test of time in the west it just wouldn't and it's been built and it's emerged into this way so the the mentalities i think it's in some ways very hard for them to be the underdog and the challenger brand in so many other markets because you come to the us well welcome to omnicom and into public and you go to the uk welcome to wpp you want to go to france i mean in a way what publicists probably have within france and it's very significant scale and Mauritius and the business has been integrated between business and politics is probably more akin to what you see in japan so it was hard it was hard for them but they i but i because they had that first foray into it with bcom3 with publicists that didn't work there's a lot of money spent on that and a wasted decade. And I think there's always been some tension between Indensu, whether to go international or to dominate in Asia, where they are very strong. You think about China, India, and just focus on the Asia play. But they've done it. They spent a lot of money buying Aegis. They're determined to build it out. They're going at it hard. They bought Merkel and they were, they were ahead. Well, actually, Jerry bought Merkel. Dentsu paid for it, but they worked on it together. And they had the vision to do that. So I genuinely wish them well. But the cultural differences, I think, do emanate in many ways from when you are, you are the game in town. You are the industry leader. You are the Goliath. You are the Facebook in social. You are the Google in search. And then you go to other markets and you're not and you're a long way down and you're really struggling hard against economic forces that are going the wrong way for all agency groups, right? You're seeing not just about insourcing, but you're seeing so many different media, you're seeing different media owners now offering different more, you know, capability sets. Clients want more hands on the keyboard, other pure play startups, because you look at digital, 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 there's a lot of analog stuff in a lot of these traditional agency holding companies that you've got to undo. So I think that, yeah, huge cultural differences, but I really, really enjoyed my time. I really enjoyed a lot of the time I spent in Tokyo. I spent a lot of my time in Tokyo and they're all really good, honorable um, people. Yeah, I think uh, Wendy and Jackie have their work cut out for them.
And we, we will watch that one with great interest. I, I share your sense. I have wonderful friendships there and it's a fantastic city. Yeah, and they're both. Wendy and, and you think Jackie, Wendy, yeah. And, and the assets they have, they have this amazing talent and amazing. If you've got to pick a team that's going to be the challenger brand to take on and really, you know, I, I, I still remain very optimistic and very positive. Yeah, they're two super smart people. So I'd love to talk about what you're doing now. You're a guy who has always been, you know, a big, big guy in our business. And when you take the stage for us at Advertising Week, as you've been gracious enough to do many times, you command the stage. And uh, very few people are really good keynoters, Nick. You know, we'll, we'll get requests and people will talk all the time. I want to have this one keynote, that one keynote. The reality is it's very difficult to stand on stage and hold the audience and get them in the palm of your hand and especially do so in a way which is genuinely reflective of thought leadership and not just pitching. And you're able to straddle that as good or better than anybody that we've ever had on stage. So I cannot imagine you're too young to go walking off on the beach quietly in the night Let's hear about, uh, we'll call it not 2.0, we'll call it Nick Bryan 3.0 and, and what you're up to right now. Well, thank you for your kind compliments. I've always, uh, I, I've always enjoyed my time at Advertising Week and keynoting. I, listen, I love the industry. You're right. I've been looking uh, and taking my time. I, was on a, I, I agreed for 2020 to be on a consulting agreement with Dentsu, understandably because of the pandemic. That was a quieter time than we expected to do. So I couldn't. I couldn't compete until six months after that. So my non-compete ends, in fact, on the 1st of July, uh, 2021. And um, I will, I've been, in the meantime, I've been doing some SPAC work. I'm involved in, in a SPAC I'm, and uh, I'm enjoying that process and focusing. But uh, at the same time, it's not the significant kind of leadership and operational roles that I've been used to. It's more transactional. But I'm very much enjoying the experience around that. But I've got a couple, I've got two opportunities. I, I think that I'm looking, and the obvious usual players, whether it be private equity or some big strategics or some that are more left field. And I'm determined to bring all this experience I've had, working with clients, working with creativity, working with strategies and, and having that executional focus to say, but I do want to embrace where data and technology can continue to find opportunities to make things better, not just better, faster, cheaper. Martin's saying that whole thing. Yeah, it's better, faster, cheaper. But there is definitely another play in Nick Bryan. It's definitely going to be uh, where the fusion of tech and great data science and machine learning and increasingly AI are coming together that we can actually build together and be the growth engine and be another one of them. There's many growth engines out there saying it. But I want to start in my sweet spot, I want to stay in the marketing and, 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 and the brand building industry. I love the idea of driving growth, but I want to do it in a way that we can also be more focused on conscious capitalism, that we can be more considerate and more thoughtful about the way we can make profits and deliver purpose. Yes, it sounds very, you know, we hear about it in Davos when that was going on and we hear about that, but I'm determined to only now play in businesses with my time and my capital to invest against businesses that give a shit about making the world a better place, not just making more money for shareholders. And so that's what I'm focused on right now. And, and as soon as I have something to announce, 
uh, I, I will call you. Oh, you're the best. So, and I couldn't agree with you more about the importance of business and purpose. And we, we're, we have been and continue to do quite a bit in that space. So let's get the, a couple of fearless forecasts. If we're back doing this and have you back on Great Minds a year from now or three years from now, you pick. What do you think we'll be talking about in terms of what will be on the front burner of our industry? All right. Well, I'll say I'll say the U.S. I think multiculturalism. I think the multi, the, the lack of multicultural market. There there is no to, the total market is a wrong market. There is no total market. I have become a citizen of the world's largest multicultural democracy. And however messy that is, and all the issues we're having around that. Okay, go look what's going on in Russia right now. Okay, go look at the way Putin deals with it, or look at Z cross over the other side of the Pacific. So I'm very proud to be here, but our business doesn't reflect that. We still haven't really advanced that. So I think multiculturalism is going to be, I think the whole notion of marketing and mattering, how our business, how we're smarter, we'll see the evolution of marketing. So I'm not just marketing to consumers to drive transactions. I'm mattering to people as members of communities and who care. So that, as you've said it, we talk about profit and purpose. That will absolutely be the foreground because I've got Gen Z. I see it in my own kids. We see it in all our kids. We see a whole new generation growing up and they expect more. So we will be more constructively in industry and capitalism in general. It will be something that will be serious, not just a level of diversity inclusion in our hiring, but in our process. Hollywood has it in the same way. The content, our culture is going to be more significant because the pandemic has done anything. It's revealed the unbelievable disparity in so many ways and the issues that have shone a light that we will find a way to focus on forward. And our industry, the media marketing and the advertising industry needs to play a much more significant leadership role in making the world a better place. That's what we'll be talking about. That was a great answer. So let's wrap up with a softball. You have traveled all over the world. The last year, all of us have had our wings clipped. We haven't really gone anywhere. What are some of the places that you are most looking forward to going to once we can all do that again? And if you were going to have one meal, Nick, I love to eat. You love to eat. What would be your favorite restaurant? Where would you like to be? What city? And where would you like to have dinner post pandemic? Oh, you know what? That's very, I would like to be. It is a softball. It's an easy one. I want to go to London. I want to go back to London. Um, you know, my mum's old. She's out there between London and Germany and my brothers and family. And people always used to say, do you miss London? And you go, well, no, I never did because I was always there. And I could always get there. You only miss what you can't have. So I do want to go back um, and, and reconnect with the city that is part of my essence and it, the place that I can't wait if I'm going to break bread the first place I'm going to take you to San Consang and we're going to have lunch, a big, unbelievable, fun lunch in Saint-Tropez. Fantastic. I'll go there with you. I would love to do that. We had um, a great guest on the show, uh, Marshall Chess, whose father, Leonard, was the scion of Chess Records, which was the premier label out of Chicago. Uh, Howlin' Wolf, Muddy Waters, all the great blues legends. And he then became the first president of Rolling Stone Records. 
and worked for Mick and Keith, was very friendly with Brian Jones. And I asked him, Marshall, were you involved in Exile on Main Street, which, as you recall, the Stones recorded at a beautiful house in France? And he said, was I involved? I'm the one who found the house and told the whole story. And I agree with you. That's a very special part of the world. And I also agree with London on the place that I'm most looking forward to going back. I've enjoyed our time there so much. It's been such a privilege. And we've gotten to go to Kensington Palace and Buckingham Palace. And we did a wonderful dinner at Abbey Road Studios with Brian Ferry and jazz at Ronnie Scott's and, you know, hanging out at the Groucho. And I can't wait to get back there. I thought of you last night because my daughter's really into stand-up comedy and you are the king of economy. And all the lunches you and I had at the comedy club and I was thinking about it. So when this all comes back, you're going to have to tell me where the best comedians are, who's performing, you know. You bet I will. Well, Nick, thanks so much for doing this. I really enjoyed it and I hope you did too. And uh, we will absolutely stay in touch. Yeah, Matt, thank you so much. All, All the best, okay? Cheers.